going back to the book of Revelation. And um, tonight's going to be very interesting, I think. We're going to get the seventh seal as we um, uh, finish the first six. And we're also going to get six of the first seven trumpets. So we're going to get quite a bit into the tribulation here today and uh, see what the word of God has for us. Let's open up in a word of prayer together. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, I don't know uh, what much more important thing we could be doing uh, with this next hour than visiting with you. And so we pray, God, that you would meet with us, Lord, individually, the way that we need you to, the way that you know perfectly well uh, what those ways are. So, Lord, thank you for uh, just protecting us, Lord, and, and reminding us that the wrath that we see fell on your son for all who believe in you. So, Lord, what more could we do? Uh, we would want to do it. Uh, so we worship you. We give you our time. We give you our attention. We give you our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Revelation chapters 8, and I believe we'll be able to go through 9 as well. Uh, chapter 8 begins where chapter 6 left off. Because remember, chapter 7 is this parentheses. It's a pause that introduced us to the 144,000 sealed Jewish believers. And also we met the uh, innumerable Gentile host there and participated in their worship with them uh, from every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, just to kind of give you some background here, a popular understanding of the chronology that we're in of Revelation pre presents the events of chapters 4 through 11 is happening in sequence. So it's kind of in this nice chronological order from 4 to 11. From chapters 12 to 20, we have the same events recorded, but with Israel as the main focus of those events. So it's like this, uh, looking under a microscope at, at, at these events. It's like the scroll that we're given that Jesus took out of his father's hands to open. That's written on both sides. It's kind of like you read the one side through the first 11 chapters, then you read the other side for the rest of it. It's kind of like Genesis 1 and 2 are written. So some skeptics want to claim that they're contradictory accounts of creation, but that's ignorance. Genesis 1 is this broad scope of creation. Genesis 2 tells the recounts creation with the focus in on Adam and Eve. So that's kind of like what's happening here. So in Revelation 8, we read after um, the pause that we just experienced. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Okay, so this is seen in, in some different ways, yet similar ways. This half an hour pause is what we like to call the great calm before the storm. So we're going to see a huge storm of, of judgment coming. This is a calm before the storm. If you can imagine that you've been on trial for your life and the jury has come back in, and the judge is about to read the verdict. If you can imagine how long that silence would feel before you're finding out if you're going to jail or if you're going to be a free person. It's, it's, it's just that very, very tense moment of anticipation. Now, this silence will be absolutely dreadful for those who are not in Christ. And it will kind of be eager anticipation for those who are in Christ because this is the pathway to our new Jerusalem. These are the events that lead up to our paradise. All right, so uh, there's silence heaven in heaven for about a half an hour. Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, 
and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, this idea of trumpets certainly is not unfamiliar to the readers of Scripture. I've given you a list of five things that trumpets are commonly used for throughout the Scriptures. They announced times of public gatherings. They directed soldiers in times of war. They signaled holy events during and throughout the Jewish year, the Jewish calendar. They're used at the giving of the Mosaic Law. <laughs> and you can see the volume of these trumpets increasing in the giving of the law. And they announced the coming of God in, in splendor and in victory. Now, these seven trumpets are reminiscent and remind us of the seven trumpets at Jericho, where, as you know, as they're commanded to march around the city once on the first day, once on the second day, and they do that consistently for six days. On that seventh day, they march around the city seven times, and at the completion of the seventh lap around the city, they blow the trumpets, and then they're commanded to shout, give a great shout, and the walls of Jericho come down at the seventh trumpet blast. Now, the priests who blew the trumpets would march in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So the sound of those trumpets to them meant as soon as I see those trumpeters, I'm going to see the Ark of the Covenant. And that's kind of what we're seeing here, because in Revelation 11:19, after these seven trumpets, we actually get a glimpse of that Ark of the Covenant. So it certainly is reminiscent of that Jericho event. Now, if you join me in uh, the book of Joel, which is not the easiest book in the Bible to find, it's uh, after the major book, Ezekiel, and you have Hosea, and you have Joel. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, we see it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. So this announcement of the day of the Lord coming is announced with the sound of the trumpet. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 12, we likewise see, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with weeping, I'm sorry, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And um, so rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Now, so we see at the blowing of the trumpets in Revelation, there's great fear for those who don't believe, but you can see in verse 12 of chapter 2 that there is a call to repentance, that those who hear this trumpet blast before this judgment comes, there is opportunities for repentance. And we're going to see that play out in Revelation as well. All right. Verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood before the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. All right, so now we're back to this picture of an altar. and We're going to see it again a little later. And the altar, obviously, is a picture of that altar of incense that was in before the, the Holy of Holies. It was before the, the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. So the veil where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, in front of that you have this altar of incense that uh, God told Moses you're to burn incense on that altar because the smoke that rises from that altar represents the prayers of the people. And every time we see this altar and this incense offered, we're to think of the prayers that it represents. So what prayers would it be representing in, the, in this case? Well. We're going to see that in a few minutes. 
But what happens now um, is, is we, what we want to ask is, who is this angel that's offering this incense? Well, some think that because he's given incense to offer, it just must be a regular angel. Because the other alternative is that this is actually Christ, the angel of the Lord, as the Old Testament calls him. And the reason why this would maybe be Christ is because he's in his ministerial office as our high priest. And he would be the one offering that incense as our high priest at this point in time, at this juncture. So I think uh, if we could see this as this angel, as the angel of the Lord, and we see that term used in those verses that I'm giving you in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Judges, 1 Kings, Psalms, and Isaiah. These are all Christophanies that are called the angel of the Lord. Okay, so we can see, you can start familiarizing your mind a little bit with that term, the angel of the Lord, and you should see evidence in those passages that that's actually a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ in the Old Testament. And remember, Jesus told us to look for him in the Old Testament. Jesus will literally tell us, uh, as he spoke to the Pharisees, he said to the Pharisees, you guys search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, but it's these that speak of me. Can you even imagine what arrogance it must take if you're going to say the entire Old Testament that you Jewish people have studied your entire lives and your parents' lives and your grandparents' lives all the way back to Moses. All you've ever done was study me. Can you imagine that statement? That's what Jesus' claim is. All of these scriptures are about him. So we're to read the Old Testament in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's actually given us light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Okay, so these prayers are ascending from the angel's hand. And the one thing I want to point out about that is it's cool to realize that God gave Moses that altar of incense, both for the tabernacle and later Solomon for the temple, because he's saying you can visibly see the smoke rising. And as you can visibly see the smoke rising, God wants us to know that represents the invisible prayers that we can't see. He wants us to know that they're rising. They're rising up to him. So he gives us a picture of that smoke. So this is our confidence in our prayer life that he's given us. Now, it says, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So now this is not something the Old Testament priesthood did. They would never take the altar, the, the censer, from which they would capture the fire in the censer, that they could bring that that's um, that fire into uh, the throne room. So carry the fire with them. And here this angel, after, after offering the incense for the prayers of the people, he now takes that censer with the fire in it and he throws it to the earth, causing these noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now, this seems to me that the offering of the incense representing the prayers of the people is and what's going to happen 
is in answer to the prayers, these would be the tribulation saints, the martyrs that we read of in a previous chapter. And they say, how long, O Lord, till you, you take vengeance on our enemies? That prayer is represented in this incense. And now the answer to their prayers is gonna be seen in this fire being thrown down, the censer being thrown down to the earth, causing these lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and so forth. So in chapter six, verse 10, during the opening of the fifth seal, you see their cry for vengeance. And now you see the, the, the smoke of their incense representing their prayers. Now you see that answer coming in the vengeance taken for them. Verse six, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So now that sets the scene for the blowing of the seven trumpets. So verse seven, we get our first trumpet. It says, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. So I wanted to take note, first of all, that in these trumpets, we're gonna see a lot of fire. Now fire is a pretty typical symbol of judgment, especially in the end times. Because Peter said where God once judged with water, in the end times he'll judge with fire. So we're going to see the recurrence of fire in these tribulation judgments. Now this says, hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. Now blood is obviously, kind of has a two-way picture. One is, blood is from judgment and the judgment of death and the blood comes from that. And remarkably, God takes that negative picture of blood and judgment and he makes blood the very symbol of our salvation through his son, right? So he takes that which the enemy uses for evil, the, our blood shed, and he becomes one of us, sheds his blood so that we would die no more. So it would end bloodshed in that, in that sense. So we're gonna see another picture of that in a moment that's really beautiful, okay? These reversals that God does. Uh, when man is intended for evil, God is intending for good. So now, we see uh, it's striking a third of the trees that are burned up. All the green grass is burned up on this first plague. Now, you see it's a third. That means God is not permitting more damage to be done than I would say the demonic world would desire. Okay, so he's putting limits. It's almost like when it says how he sets the boundaries for the oceans and he says you come this far and no further. You should always think of that verse when you visit the ocean because you get the sense of awe and power with the water of the ocean. You know it could take your life in a heartbeat. And you think of all the ships and think of all the life that goes on in the sea, far more than it even goes on on the land. There's this entire another planet under that water. And he can literally say to the power of all that water, this far and no further. That's kind of what he's doing with these judgments. He's saying with these judgments, you go this far and you go no further. So he limits it. Why? Well, because I think he's still offering repentance. He's offering opportunities for repentance, and we've seen that. If you look at the next chapter, verse 20, you're gonna see the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So what, was, what were they looking for in these plagues? Repentance. And the ones that are gonna experience the bull judgments saying they did not repent. So to me, it indicates they had an opportunity there. So that brings us to our second trumpet. Well, first of all, that first, this hail has a parallel 
Some of these have parallels to the Exodus. The Exodus is one of the most important books of our Bible. In fact, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear with him, it says that he was discussing with Moses and Elijah his departure. But departure is the English word there. The Greek word there is his exodus. He was discussing with Moses and Elijah his exodus. And a fascinating study to do, we should do this one night, is to see how the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is paralleling the exodus from beginning to end. He's creating a new exodus. As he freed the, Egypt, the Israelites from bondage of slavery, he repeats the exodus as a new Moses to free us from the bondage of sin and death. So Jesus becomes our greater Moses, and his life reflects that in a really cool way. All right, so this trumpet blast reminds us of the Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 18. It says, Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. And then they're going to gather their livestock. And as you know, some of them did not gather their livestock, and they did not take cover. They did not believe that this would actually happen. And guess what happened? Their blood was shed. So therefore, the hail was mixed with blood, as you see now in this Revelation uh, judgment. All right, now, as previously promised, our second trumpet blast. Verse 8. It says, then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. There's our blood and our fire again. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the parallel here is to the first plague where the, the waters are turned into blood and the fish all die. Now the blood of the waters is probably not due to the sea creatures dying but because it resembles the first plague, it's part of the judgment that the water simply miraculously turned to blood. So therefore mimicking the Egyptian plague. Yet again, God limits his judgment here as well. Repentance is still an, op an option. Bringing us to our third trumpet. Okay, so we've had the grass and the trees struck, and now we have the waters, uh, we have the sea struck, and now we're going to have the lesser bodies of water struck in our third trumpet. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So with this, this third trumpet blast, a heavenly object that's named Wormwood is cast into the water. So now, wormwood is a bitter plant that grows in the wastelands. It turns waters bitter. So we see the foreshadowing of that in Exodus chapter 15 now. In Exodus chapter 15, if you join me in verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink from the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. All right, what is this picture? Believe it or not, 
That is the picture of your salvation given in Exodus. Why? Because sin has, uh, makes our lives bitter. And that is seen first in Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sin, they do their best to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, a fig leaf, a fig is a very sweet fruit. But what was it used for? It wasn't used for a sweet task. It was used for a very bitter task of hiding sin, trying to conceal sin. So there the sweet was used for, for a bitter purpose. Here, the waters of, of, of Mara are bitter. And God says this, here's how we're going to fix it. I can fix it any way that I want to. And here's the way that I want to fix it. I want you to take a tree, some of your versions say a stick, and I want you to throw it in the waters and that tree will make the water sweet. Now, what is this prefiguring? The very sin that is resembled, is, is shown us by the fig leaves, uh, the sweet fruit used for a bitter task, um, the, the, the very tree is now thrown into the water to make the water sweet. That's prefiguring the fact that sin is bitter, makes our lives very bitter, but there'll be a tree that's going to make it all sweet again. But somebody has to take on its bitterness. So that tree, Paul says, he calls the cross a tree. And Jesus dies on that tree. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, says the Bible, right? And that's in reference to Christ being cursed. You know, so we, we hesitate to use language like that, that Christ is actually cursed, but he was. In fact, Paul will say it even bolder than that. Paul will say Jesus became not a sinner, never became a sinner, but he became sin, sin itself. Okay, the very stench in his father's nostrils, the son becomes that for our sake, made very, very bitter. So the cross takes that bitterness that was due to us and turns it into the sweetness of our salvation. That's prefigured in the waters of Mara here with the tree being its healing. And it's seen uh, with wormwood here again. Now there is no tree is the point of revelation. These waters are made bitter and there is no cross. There is no tree. This is just judgment uh, that's coming. All right, leading us to our fourth trumpet. So what have we had so far? We've had the grass, we've had the trees, we've had the large bodies of water, we've had the smaller bodies of water affected, and now we turn our attention to verse 12, the fourth trumpet. <coughs> it says, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, this is the hardest of the four trumpets thus far to take in its literal sense. This seems to be a recapitulation of what we see in the sixth seal, if you go back to chapter six with the sixth seal in verses 12 and 13. Because there John looked and when he opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sack, sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth 
as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Now, so that brings me to a rather popular understanding of how the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all related. Some take them, the seals, to be separate from the trumpets, to be separate from the bowls. Others see this as they call it a telescoping view. You think of a telescope. A telescope, you kind of pull it out and pull it out further, correct? To get closer and closer look. So they would say this: the, the telescope, when it's pushed in, is the seals. And then when you get to the trumpets, you, put, you take the telescope out a little further. It tells you about the same events, but now you see them a little bit more up close. And then when you get to the bowls, it's the same judgments, but now the telescope is fully extended, and you can really bring them close in and see just how destructive and awful they are. So that's uh, two of the views of these three judgments. Either they're separate or they're telescoping. Why do I bring it up with this one? Because when you have in the seal these stars falling from heaven and the sun is darkened and the moon is like blood, and then you have it happen again, then it becomes difficult to understand how, in a literal sense, these cosmic happenings could happen and we not we be able to survive this drastic a change in the sun and the moon and the stars. Very little would have to change in the sun and the moon and the stars for us not to be able to live on the planet. This is called the uh, this is called the argument from design. Everything is so extremely finely designed that any interruption in any of the hundred plus cosmological constants, if they move even a hair's breadth, we wouldn't be able to survive. This is why we get the saying, life is balanced on a razor's edge. If it moves any way, one way or the other, there is no life. But the fact that all of these constants against hundreds of millions or even billions to one odds of any one of them coming true, yet they've all come true, is one of the great evidences for the existence of God. Because randomness would be no explanation for such phenomenal odds being overcome. So with that, people look at this trumpet and they would say this must be supporting that telescopic view. So, now... So in the fourth trumpet, this is prefigured by the ninth plague. So if we go back to Exodus chapter 10 and we study the ninth plague, we'll see the similarities here with this fourth trumpet. This is uh, Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 21. There we read this. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Now that's quite the statement, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. You see the protection of the people of God. It's almost like the seal on the forehead of the 144,000. They can't be touched by these plagues um, we see in these events here. All right. Now, either way you look at it, this is a great, great judgment. Okay? So we've had the grass burnt up, a third of the grass. We've had a third of the trees burnt up. We've had the great bodies of water um, bloodied. We've had the smaller streams and rivers um, made bitter. And now we have 
not on the earth this judgment but now in the in the heavens we have this judgment and this makes us very serious this great judgment why because god is affecting the heavens now the star the moon the sun the moon and the stars and those have always been used to tell us great great things about god in fact in one of my classes just today he, uh, a student of mine had a question that a skeptical friend was asking him, and he said he would talk about it in Bible class and get back to him. And the skeptical friend was simply saying this. He said, do you believe there's alien life out there? And his friend said instinctively, no, I don't think there's alien life out there. Well, why not? How could there not be when there's so much space out there? How could we be all alone in this universe? And when he says so much space, he's absolutely right. I mean. If you were launched into the universe in a random place, I promise you this, you could search for millions of years and never find the Milky Way galaxy. It would be way too long of a shot for you ever to come across this Milky Way galaxy if you were just randomly put somewhere in the universe. Even if you were randomly put somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy, you would never find the Earth. It would be a billion to one shot you ever came across the Earth in millions of years. It's just way too big to find this dusty little planet of a speck of floating rock called the earth you would never ever find it so people use that to say this doesn't look well designed it looks like a lot of wasted space and here's what i say of course it's this way because psalm 19 one of my favorite verses verse 1 the heavens declare the glory of god now listen if we're any smaller I'd be very upset that that's the declaration of my God, that I can somehow figure out space. I have a grasp of its size. My mind has some comprehension of this universe. No, they are declaring, listen to what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, God's handiwork. It's, it's, it's vast. It's almost infinite. It's expanding all the time. It's his handiwork. Listen, if you, if I went over your house and you said, I'm gonna show you my handiwork, it wouldn't be the universe. This is the universe we're talking about. It's his handiwork. It's like, I have a hobby. I'm gonna make the universe, okay? And when he creates all these incredible stars that are way bigger than the earth and way brighter than the earth and way hotter than the earth and all of these things, here's how Genesis tells that story. It says, he made the stars also, okay, listen. They're declaring the glory of God, the firmament, his handiwork, day unto day utters speech. The heavens are talking to us. So when he's destroying them in Revelation, he's cutting off communication. There's no speech coming forth. Look at Romans chapter one. Listen, do you know what it means when communication is cut off from you? Okay. Now, this isn't my marriage whatsoever. I'm just saying that maybe one of your marriages, your spouse stops speaking to you. There, something's wrong, right? There's no speech coming forth, okay? Now, I know Mike just said, I've spoken like nine pages a night to you or something like that. Here's what my wife said. I do that before I get out of bed, all right? She's constantly uttering forth speech, all right? Wait till you... I tell you the story of how I hear about that after tonight. <laughs> all right, so <laughs> now look at Romans 1.20 with all of this. <laughs> 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. His eternal power and Godhead. They're uttering for speech. So this is serious stuff when God starts destroying the very stuff that he gave as a witness to himself. He gave this stuff as a witness to himself. Go to Isaiah chapter 40, one of my very, very favorite chapters in all of scripture. Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, we're going to go here twice tonight, so don't lose your spot when you go there. Verses 25 and 26 says this. God says, to whom will you liken me? Or who's my equal, says the Holy One. He says, lift your eyes up on high and see who created these things. So now God is saying, when you're doubting me, or you have an idol in your life, and something has equality with me in your life, I want you to go outside at night and look up and ask yourself, who made that? Now, obviously in South Florida, with all of our light pollution, we don't get a great glimpse of what he's talking about, but ask Isaiah what he saw when he looked up in the heavens. He saw blankets upon blankets of stars everywhere across the sky, okay? And God says, look up and ask yourself, who made that? Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Listen, just our telescopes alone have captured 100 billion galaxies. We've seen 100 billion galaxies with our telescopes. Each of those galaxies averages 10 billion stars. That's a billion trillion stars our telescopes have made contact with, and that's just a fraction of the universe. That's just as far as our telescopes can go. And he says this, I call each one of those out by name, and not one of them's lost. And he's not saying that to say he loves stars. He's saying the same is true for you. I know each one of you by name, and I won't lose one of you. If I can handle the universe that way, I can handle the earth that way. So you can trust me. Now what does it mean that he's destroying these things? Guys, this is the greatest picture you'll ever see of what it means to be too late. Okay? Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. They tested them for 40 years. It says today is the day of salvation. Now, Back to Revelation. Jeremiah 31, 35, 36 tells you the same story about the glory of the skies and the fact that God would destroy them is serious, serious business. So with these four trumpets, they affect the earth and sky. The last three give, uh, are given tremendous warning due to the, the last three trumpets, five, six, and seven. We're gonna get a tremendous warning about them because of the fact that they're gonna directly affect not grass, not trees, not large bodies of water, small bodies of water, not even sun, moon, and stars. They're going to affect people. Okay, so these last three trumpets are actually going to be judgments directly upon mankind. So that gets introduced to us this way. Verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. Now we get the three woes here, and that could be paralleled to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees angels give the three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the only attribute of God that gets that threefold repetition uh, sung to him. He's holy, holy, holy. 
But now we get this woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpets that are about to sound. Now, prophets of the Old Testament gave oracles either in the form of weal or woe. Okay, so blessings or curses is how the prophets of old gave, gave uh, oracles. We see through Isaiah, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, we see through Isaiah, he proclaims a self-woe, doesn't he? He says, woe is me for I'm undone. Okay, so he pronounces this woe of judgment upon himself because he's seen God and he realizes now in light of God how undone he is, how sinful he is, and now a burning coal is gonna have to purge his sin and he's gonna be a prophet whose mouth is gonna declare the oracles of God. He has to have his lips singed, burned, and blistered by a hot coal that not even an angel will touch. He has to use tongs to, to handle. He will sear his lips and create a wound upon his lips because his mouth is gonna be used for holiness now. So he has to be wounded right, right where he's gonna be used. Now, think of the Sermon on the Mount when you think of oracles of weal. Jesus constantly starts the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are you who? He's pronouncing all these blessings for people who behave the way that behavior goes in the kingdom of God. So he talks about meekness, he talks about comfort, he talks about, um, well, this is just for the earth, but when you're persecuted for his name's sake, you're gonna receive great blessings. So he's pronouncing oracles of weal, where you see Isaiah with the oracle of woe. Here though, you get the threefold complete cycle of woe that are gonna come from these last three angels. So let's bring that to Revelation chapter nine. This is the first woe. So the first woe we're gonna get right here in the first 12 verses of chapter nine. The second woe we're gonna get in the sixth trumpet in chapter 11. And the third woe we're gonna get at the completion of God's wrath in, in later in uh, chapter 11. So here is the four woes, starting in verse one. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given a key to the bottomless pit. So before we read further, just understand this. This is no star, okay? You can't give a star a key to use, right? So this is a being. Now let's see if we can identify the being here. I saw a star fallen from heaven. By the way, the word fallen there in the Greek is in the perfect past tense. When it's in the perfect tense, it means that action's already completed. So that means John is not trying to say, I saw a star falling from heaven. He says, I saw a star and it's a fallen star that was from heaven. So it's in the state of being fallen like Satan is in the state of being fallen. So I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So now, I believe, as many do, that this is a picture of what Jesus was talking about in Luke 
chapter 10, verse 18. Luke 10, 18, where Jesus simply says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning. So now you have that picture here with the fifth angel. It's a star fallen from heaven to earth. I saw Satan fall like lightning. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And this picture, I believe also, you see this picture. Um, I thought I included an Ezekiel verse here, but I don't see it now. Uh, in Revelation 12, if you go to Revelation 12, if the telescoping view that I talked about is true, then what you're read, we're reading in Revelation 9 comes true in Revelation 12, where it says this, war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So it's this picture of the casting out of Satan from heaven to the earth. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And now we have in this uh, fifth trumpet blast, this star that's in a fallen state coming from heaven to earth. John sees it in the form of a star. Uh, verse uh and so verse two with this, the, this, the smoke, this is talking about the spiritual corruption that's going to happen during the tribulation. And you're going to get like antichrist, which is going to be a false Christ. Um, we're going to get all this spiritual deception that's going to be happening during that time. We can go back to the book of Joel chapter one to see a reference to this. Joel chapter 1, verse 4, we read, oh, I didn't get into the locust yet. Let's talk about the locust. We'll go there. It says, he opened the bottomless pit and smoke rose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because the smoke of the pit. Verse 3, then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. So now to Joel chapter 1, verse 4, where we see, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. Or what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So this is a devouring uh, through locusts. Now, we have a prefiguring of this in one of the plagues of Egypt, don't we? The locust plague. Now we're in Joel that happens after Exodus, and we're talking about these locusts. And it's pointing us now also to Revelation. So Joel serving as this hinge point from Exodus to Revelation about judgment through locusts. But now let's take a look at these locusts because I'm going to suggest to you that these are not bugs. These are something far different than bugs. So verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these are locusts that, you know, an animal locust, that's all he does is eat the grass and all that stuff. These are commanded not to do that. And they're to attack men who have not had the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, these locusts, I believe to be demons. 
It says, and they were not, and we'll see why in particular in a few verses. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. So here's the first of two mentions of the torment of these locusts is going to be for five months. Now it just so happens that the lifespan of a locust is five months. They live usually from like May to September. So this says that they were, they do not have the authority to kill people, but just to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. It's another, it's another verse that points to the fact that these are demons. And here's why. Because when we see demonic, severe demonic oppression or demonic possession, the will of the host, the will of the person possessed is mute. They cannot do what they want. They cannot say what they want. They cannot act as they want. They are under that oppression or that possession. Here, it says men will want to die. They'll cry out for death and it will not be granted to them. They're not even able to commit suicide. There's, there's a fate worse than death, isn't there? And that's being in such a position that you desire death and it's not granted to you. Okay, so this is part of the locusts, uh, locust judgment is this demonic taking over that is so awful you'll want to die and it won't be granted to you, at least for five months. So it's pretty bad. All right, let's go to uh, verse seven. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. The, their power was to hurt men five months. So that five months is reiterated and I think the idea of the reiteration of the five months is this is no short, quick thing where Pharaoh can say to Moses, okay, I get it. Call on your God to stop the plague. Moses calls on God and the plague is stopped. Even in the begging for death, it's not granted. That's, a, that's the level of the suffering and it's gonna go on for five months, if you can even imagine. It's gonna go on for five months. Now, some see in the description of the locusts an false imitation of the four living creatures that we met in chapter four. So those four living creatures that were with the elders all worshiping around the throne, you see in verses six and seven of chapter four, John says, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So now you have these holy creatures in heaven that worship God, and now you've got the false imitation of them during the tribulation that causes spiritual confusion and spiritual chaos and rebellion because of the falseness of them. And these creatures uh, that we see here, these locusts, 
And you can see some of the similarities. Um, it says they have faces like men. They um, have lion's teeth and uh, wings like the sound of chariots and many horses running into battle. That could be like the eagle's wings. But there's, uh, it's a false, like an antichrist imitates Jesus in a false way. Here, um, these locusts imitate the four living creatures in a false way. Now, these breastplates of iron imply that they are guarded against destruction. They are prepared for warfare. These are for battle. The wings and the chariots imply that they are inescapable. They have great speed and agility. The five months is repeated to highlight the severity of the suffering. And the fact that the locusts have a king, verse 11, as they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, he has a name Apollyon. So in Hebrew, he's called Abaddon, which means destroyer. In Greek, he's called Apollyon, which means destroyer. So he's got the Hebrew and the Greek covering both testaments that give us a revelation of, of Satan. Um, and now we get his Hebrew uh, name from the Old Covenant. We get his Greek name from the New Covenant. He's Abaddon and Apollyon. Both meaning uh, destruction. And we conclude in verse 12. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. This is just the first woe. And I, I went through the woes and the wheels of, um, of these things before. Now, what's clearly demonstrated here that is lost on a lot of people today is that there is a spiritual realm with demonic forces that are against us. And the number one way that you don't have a chance against these demonic forces is simply by not recognizing the truth of them, the reality of them. We who believe in Jesus must believe when he deals with Satan, he's dealing with a being who still is his enemy today. Now, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. He will say, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He's going to talk about you battling the demonic world. And before he tells you about your battle with the demonic world, he says, be strong in the Lord. There's your victory, correct? He's not saying be strong on your own and work out and figure it out. He's saying, how's your faith? How's your trust? How's your, how's your spiritual disciplines? How's your Bible reading? How's your worship life? Okay, how's your prayer and fasting life? Be strong in the Lord and, and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now listen, Satan in some sense is restrained right now. You're seeing him full force in, in the tribulation period, full force. Okay, The Holy Spirit is in my living room through me right now, and he's in your homes through you right now. The Holy Spirit's a restrainer. He's restraining. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You sit there as the one victorious over this locust king of Revelation 9. Okay, You stand with more authority and power because you have Christ in you. This is why communion is so important. Because the invisible reality of Christ abiding within you 
Jesus says, comes through the visible symbol of you partaking of communion. That's where you get that grace of his abiding. Okay, So communion is very, very essential for our, our spiritual lives. Now, Ephesians, he continues in Ephesians 6, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, you take up the whole armor of God. And when he tells you to take up the whole armor of God, he's going to talk about your spiritual disciplines. Okay, your spiritual disciplines. That's you going to battle. When you see that picture of somebody curled up in their chair with their blankets, with a cup of tea next to them, reading their Bible, and you think how meek and how mild, understand this. Hitler had no army so strong as that. That is your spiritual warfare. That is how you are putting on the armor of God. That's how this devil, Jesus' very nemesis, who hates you, gets defeated. Make no mistake about it. Paul is desperately trying to tell us you're, at, you're in warfare. Now, those four angels that I just talked about, well, let's go back to Revelation real quick. We, uh, so that was the first woe. The fifth trumpet is the first woe. Now we're on the sixth trumpet, verse 13. It says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. We're back at the altar, right? What happens at the altar? The incense is offered for the prayers of the people. We're back there again in verse 13. And we have... Um, Four horns of the gold, golden altar which before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Okay, so there's four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. I do not suggest at all that these are holy angels. Holy angels are never bound. This binding of these angels must be uh, demonic angels. Now the great river Euphrates could literally be the great river Euphrates that they're bound in, but sometimes the Euphrates is used to refer to first century Jews to places to the east of them. So this could mean attack from the east, or this could literally be from the Euphrates, which is to the east. And um, these four angels may be, if you go to Jude, the book of Jude, which is immediately before the book of Revelation, verse six of the only chapter there is of Jude, these angels may be referred to in Jude six here. And Jude writes, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these may be part of those angels that are not going to be released for this great day here in Revelation 9. So he says, release the four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, why this precision of they are prepared for the hour and the day and the month of the year? That's simply a picture of the sovereignty of God. Think of today. Today is not that day, hour, or year, but they're waiting there prepared today. They're 
Wherever they are, they're there, prepared. God's sovereignty has them there. And then he will declare, release, release them. And then this is what's going to take place there. They're going to kill a third of mankind. Now, this says that they've been prepared for this hour. It's the same word that's used in Hebrew in Jonah 1.17 about the fish. Jonah had a fish that was prepared for him. In fact, some of your versions say appointed. This is an appointed fish. In other words, these things God has chosen just for a specific purpose. Now that fish that God appointed may have been created right, right as uh, Jonah got thrown into the waters and maybe he ceased to exist right after he, he threw him up onto the shore or maybe he always existed but he was prepared for that moment for Jonah because he had to be in the same area, he had to be hungry and he had to not chew him up and all that stuff, correct? Now that same word is used here for these four angels. They've been appointed or they've been prepared, especially designed and created for the moment that they're in right now. All right. So this four, uh, here uh, in verse 15, so the four angels who had been paired for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, 200 million. Uh, in the Greek, it says 200,000 thousands, okay, which of course we just translate to 200 million. I, I heard the number of them. Now listen, in John's day, the entire population of the earth was not even 2 million people. So how could John dare say that he now sees an army on the earth of 2 million people? when, again, he didn't have 2 million people on the entire planet in that day. Well, John said this, I know that's the right number, he says, because I heard it. I heard the number. I know it's a number, I heard it. Now, why I love that about John is because John loves to give testimony of this kind. I refer to you to 1 John, first chapter, first four verses, Talking about Jesus, the same apostle says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. He trusts his ears, doesn't he? That which was from the beginning, that which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that life was manifested, made available to our senses. That life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is the great John 1.14 verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He was manifested to us. This wonderful God, when Isaiah 40 says, who are you comparing me to? Look up in the sky and tell me who made those things. That one became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He was manifested to us. So John can say that which we have seen and heard, we declare that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Okay, listen, tap into the apostle's heart here. See, I'm telling you about Jesus Christ because if I do and you receive it, you're gonna have fullness of joy. 
but what about all these hard things in my life? Okay, compare those to Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul did that and he said this, I don't consider the sufferings of this present world worthy of comparing to the glory that's awaiting us in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Keep your mind there when you're going through your tribulations, when you're going through your hard times. Keep your mind there. All right, so John said, listen, I know there's only so many people on the earth, but this army has more people than the entire world's population. He says, I know I'm right because I heard it. And I know I can trust my hearing because I heard Jesus Christ and that turned out to be true because I saw him die and then I saw him alive again. So I trust my senses when it comes to Jesus Christ. I'm an eyewitness, an ear witness, a hand witness. This stuff really happened. I know it's gonna be two million people in this army because I heard the number. And now John would probably go, see, I told you, because now we have seven to eight billion people in the world China and India together have about 2 billion of those 8 billion. So them coming from the East would make sense. China recently claimed that they have almost 320 million people ages 16 to 49 that they say are fit for military service. And they have 300 million women of that age as well. So there's a half a billion right there. Okay. So now I know you're going to watch Fox News, CNN, and see what China's up to and start worrying, right? Okay. Well, remember, Jesus put his hand on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid. And that's not talking about China. That was talking about what you're going to see Satan do, okay? And he tells me and you to not be afraid of that. All right, so back to Revelation 9 as we close up. Woo. All right. So it says... It says, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. There's verse 17. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, I don't know that word, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. But these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their powers in their mouth and in their tails for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. So now, earlier we had in one of the seals, a quarter of the earth was plagued with war from the red horse, the fiery red horse, and he was given authority to kill in a fourth of the earth. So if he killed a quarter of the world's population, now we have a third of mankind being killed through here, if I can add fractions properly, one-third plus one-fourth is seven-twelfths. That's over half of the world's population is gone by this time. Of course, the rapture takes a whole bunch of people, and now those remaining, we have over half of them killed by this sixth trumpet blast. Okay? Verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, that they should not worship demons, and idols of, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So it's hard to believe, it's hard to imagine that with all that they're seeing and doing, they would not repent. But 
just like God likes to remind us of the wilderness generation and how he did miracles for 40 years in their sights, that every morning they got up, there was miraculous manna on the ground for them to eat. When they ran out of water, they saw Moses strike a rock. That rock gushed forth water that, that gave two million Israelites a drink that afternoon. So they were satisfied. When they complained about meat, they saw quail fly in, drop dead in front of them, and they feasted for days on meat. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle on a daily basis. They would see a, a cloud by day miraculously rise up, and they would follow it. They would see a pillar of fire by night. They had crossed through a body of water, the Red Sea, with the walls of water beside them on dry land. And when they saw their enemy tried to imitate that, the waters closed in and drowned their enemies. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And of the couple million that came out of Egypt, wandered for 40 years, get to the Jordan River, how many of them get to cross over into the Promised Land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. That's it. God said because they hardened their hearts in the wilderness against him. Even though they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. We would say, I would never do that. Well, fast forward to the, to the end times. Okay? You have miraculous devastation after miraculous devastation. It says they're not repenting of their evil. The doctrine of hell says that the people get more angry and wicked throughout all of eternity. Can you imagine that? There's no repentance. They raise up more in their hatred and their evil. Okay? Now let's go back to the verse I talked about a little while ago. Today is a day of salvation. Why? Because your hearts get harder. Your hearts get more wicked. Left to your own devices, you're going to get further and further and further from God. Okay? So he's declared some things to us. Now, would it, how is Revelation 9 ending here? Well, Revelation 9 is ending by saying that they're, they're stuck on idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood. They can neither see nor hear nor walk. What kind of craziness is that? How do they get stuck on that? It's no different than in times past. Back to Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 18. God says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And then he starts talking about, we do compare things to God. We become idol factories. John Calvin's famous for saying, the human brain is an idol factory. We're always creating idols for ourselves. So God says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him to? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. And whoever's too poor for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. We take all these precious things, gold and silver, and if you're too poor for that, you get the best wood. And you put it all together and you make yourself an idol. And I love that it says this. But you got to make it in a way that it won't totter. Did you ever wake up and pray and God said, wait, help me, I tottered. I've fallen and I can't get up. Why would we take that God and replace him with these gods that we actually have to put gold, silver? And it says this, they can't talk to you. They can't see anything. They can't speak anything. And you're worshiping this stuff. Now listen. Some of you just went like this, not me. That's the whole point 
of only two crossing the Jordan. They all thought, not me. That's the whole point of nobody repenting in Revelation because they're all thinking none of this is about me. We all got to look at ourselves and saying, the last thing I want to say is not me. Here's what the Bible says in, in Romans 7. Paul says, in me, no good thing resides. It's all Christ. It is all Jesus Christ. If there's anything not damnable in you, that thing in you that's not damnable is called Jesus Christ. It's him and it's all him and it's always him. It's always going to be him and always was him. Okay? This is why he's worthy of our worship all the time. Because there's only him. So the statement that I'm using with my students right now is this. I say here's a fact and then here's an application of that fact. The fact is this. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your entire life. The only question is, do you walk accurately with that or inaccurately with that? It's the only question of life. You're walking accurately with him being the most important thing or are you an idol factory and something else is more important to you? Now, it says you make these idols, but you have to make them so they don't totter. That reminds me of when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they stuck it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Then they went in to worship Dagon and Dagon had tottered. He'd fallen over. So here's what they got to do to their God that they worship. They have to pick him back up and set him back up again. They go in the next day to worship. He tottered. This time, the Hebrew word is the word that you use for falling prostrate on the ground in the form of worship. So now he's in front of the Ark of Covenant in the posture of worship. But it says his head had fallen off and his hands had fallen off. Meaning, your God has no wisdom and your God has no power. Okay? So why would we ever make anything like that? Why do we have anything in our lives that gets more worship in our hearts than that of Jesus Christ? So chapter 9 ends by saying we can be awfully silly to the level of our own destruction. So how, what's the cure for that? The cure for that is what Paul said in Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't forget the belt or the helmet or the shoes, the sword. Don't forget any of it. Put on the entire armor of God every day because you have a devil that hates you. He's alive and he's active, but he's not as strong as he who abides in you. If you take that seriously, you're in a position of victory. If you don't believe it, you've lost already. So um, the book of Hebrews will say, therefore, encourage one another daily. That's how we do this thing. We encourage one another daily. Think about, are you going to bed tonight successfully having encouraged somebody in their walk today, in their life today, that they have victory in Christ today or that they need Christ today? Did you accomplish that before you go to bed tonight? Can you get up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to encourage somebody today in the faith, either towards the faith or who's in the faith, that they're going to receive my encouragement because... As the book of Hebrews says, people drift away. And when you drift away, that means you don't even notice that you're getting further and further. That's what a drift is. So how am I going to know something that you don't even notice? I have to be actively against the drift. I got to be intentional not to drift. I got to have my Bible time, my prayer time, my worship time. I've got to be in prayer and fasting. I've got to be very intentional where Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. So in other words, 
if you're in the middle, you're not for him. And if you're not for him, you're against him. So we got to be active about our faith. And uh, there, therein lies Satan's defeat in your life, is your active participation in, in the kingdom of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in the name of your Son, the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The name above all names, Lord, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that this Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Lord, receive our worship, receive our prayers, we pray. Bless your people who gather around your word to draw closer to you. We pray all of this for your name's sake. Amen.